breathing. And um, actually, right now, <clears throat> did you hear the sound of the bird outside? Yeah. I was wondering if everything in our life could be a bit like that sound of the bird. Um, in terms of how we relate to everything in our daily life. You know, we're in this environment and there's a lot of spaciousness and we open and we see a lot of things. And can we bring this with us? Can we, um, can we relate to everything as it is? I think that's the question, as it is. Maybe uh, no real answers occurred during this week, but we certainly gave you enough questions. <laughs> and I'd like to just remind you of these questions as you make your way out, because I think they're life questions. I think, you know, what, what I saw is that everyone worked so sincerely and so deeply with these questions during the week here, whether consciously or not, I, I saw it happen. But I think these questions are really um, far beyond this retreat and are really wonderful, great life questions. So just to remind you, the first question was, what do I find it impossible to be patient with? <laughs> and of course, we go out into our everyday life and, you know, the things change. So just to be, just to keep that as a question, a precious question, a precious life question, what do I find it impossible to be patient with? And is it possible to bring the light of attention to this as well? Edge of practice. Edge of practice. <laughs> and the second question, what do I need to renounce and why can't I do it? And, you know, in a retreat, it sort of changes from when one is here to when one is, is in one's daily life. So the same question outside or inside in one's daily life, what do I need to renounce and why can't I do it? And it's the same thing, and yet it might apply to different subject matter. But, you know, it's the same thing. It's, it's the judgments, it's the harshness, it's the self-image, it's the comparisons. You know, it's the same thing. But um, to really just, just remind you of these questions as you make your way out. You know, when I gave the talk on renunciation, when I was thinking about giving that talk, I was thinking it's the heart of the Buddhist teaching, and it's really a tough one. You know, even though it's renunciation of suffering, when you move into renunciation of fantasy, renunciation of, you know, habit, it's really a tough teaching. I feel so much respect for all of you, and so much confidence in our um, strength, so much confidence in our willingness to take the heart of the teaching and to hear it and to apply it. And at the same time, I'm really grateful that you really did receive it you know, so well. I feel like everyone has really worked really well with it, so I thank you for that. Lots of ups and downs in our daily life. Sometimes for women, there tends to be a little bit more of a natural integration between retreat and daily life than my observation is around men. Sometimes it can be a little um, more different. But for women, perhaps, there is such a, an, an inner leaning, such a, a residing in the inner world, just perhaps in a very natural way, that there does seem to be a bit more of a natural integration that occurs. You know, not making such a distinction between being on retreat and being in our usual life. And, you know, I just think this is so important, and we can use this natural leaning that we may already have and continue to really apply the teachings. In our daily life, I feel that it's so important not to just uh, try to apply the teachings when we find ourselves out of balance, when we find ourselves caught in something, when we find ourselves really frightened or really upset or anxious or whatever, but to really have the intention to um, use those times when there's a natural balance occurring. Usually in every given day, 
uh, unless there's something huge happening, there is some natural balance that we hit upon now and then. You know, maybe it's just now and then, but we do hit it. This, this um, place of equanimity, this place of things being just okay right in this moment. And I, I think it's really important not to have a crisis management um, approach to <laughs> the practice. You know, <laughs> sometimes um, we're all different in this, but some people practice only when things are really bad, and some people practice only when things are fairly good. <laughs> and I think we need to just kind of look at which 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 part we're in of that, and to to bring it over to the other side, whatever that might be. But I I really do suggest that when there is a natural balance occurring in a given day, natural sense of equanimity or okayness that we, we try to be aware of what our reaction is in that moment. We try to be aware of whether we're clinging. We try to be aware of whether we're identifying with it in some way. Um, we try to be aware of whether we're grasping or whether we're afraid of it or whether we're thinking it's going to go so quickly so we really better hang on. You know, We try to be aware of what our relationship is to it. Because it's really important, it's really important not to just be aware um, when we absolutely are forced to and we have to, but when there is that natural sense of equanimity, can we, can we stay with it? Can we be still in the midst of it? Can we be aware of our reactions? Remembering that usually the feet are somewhere near the floor, you know, whatever posture, the feet are near the floor. Sitting, standing, standing, definitely. Um, lying down, walking. The feet are touching the floor. Different parts of the feet, but some part of the feet. And to use that, I really mean it in a literal way. It sounds good, you know, groundedness and everything. But I mean to use it in a really literal way because I find it so helpful to just be aware of feet touching the floor. All day long, it's a great practice. Just feet fl- touching the floor. Everything can come out of it, you know. Everything can spring up from this sense of feet touching the floor. So, various moments, just perhaps to rest in just standing. We can use everything as an opportunity to wake up, and I think that whatever we don't use is is where the problem lies. So we, we really need to, to look and see if it's possible to use our entire life as an opportunity to deepen, as an opportunity to wake up. The Buddha said, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the yogi dwells in stability and freedom. So in each moment of life, is it possible to dwell in stability and freedom? And when we're not, what's happening? What's occurring? Can we be aware? Hmm. Sitting, I think, daily practice is one of those essential, not-to-be-missed kinds of things to do. Even if it's for a really short amount of time. You know, I don't think we, we need to get grandiose about it or, or weigh it down too much with ideas. Even if it's for a really short amount of time every day, I, I think it's, it's like giving yourself vitamins. It's like taking your daily vitamins to sit every day. Because when the mind is at rest, we are truly free to be wise. If the mind is agitated and running around, it's really hard for wisdom to come up. The mind goes down, wisdom comes up. Putting the body into a down posture can help a lot to allow wisdom to naturally come up. We find perspective in our sitting practice. You know, just sitting still, doing nothing. We discover, in spite of ourselves sometimes, we discover a sense of spaciousness, a sense of perspective. Oftentimes I feel that that is one of the great values of being on retreat is a rediscovering of perspective, a reordering of priorities, a reordering of what is truly meaningful to us as human beings. 
And so the sitting, I think, really works so well with that, uh, the daily sitting, in terms of remembering what it is that we've discovered here. To sit with the intention to be present and not to plan dinner, (laughs) and to accept when dinner planning is happening, you know? To really renounce the results. You know, to sit with a great deal of earnestness and, and um, just sitting, just sitting, being enough, with this very clear intention to be present. Sitting with friends, I think, is really, it's one of the graces of doing this with other people, is, is having Dharma buddies and sitting with friends. I probably mentioned this before, but I, I had a friend for, I have a friend, but we don't do this anymore, but for many years we used to get together, and um, once a week we would sit for three hours together, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, and then tea, of course, was part of it. <laughs> but it was great. It was really such a, a, a good thing to do. Uh, it was in the early time of practice, and you know, it wasn't always fun, but to sit with a friend made it fun, even when it always wasn't. You know, just, to, just to have that companionship and that friendship, and to recognize that the friendship was developing as well, simply through being in silence together. So I just encourage you to find people to sit with. Um, I know some of us have very strong sanghas here, and I know others of us don't. And um, just to find even one person, doesn't have to be a huge sangha, even one person, a, a dharma date, is a good thing to do. <laughs> I had the idea at CIMC once of Dharma dances. And, you know, usually the board is quite respectful to me and appreciates me. <laughs> they laughed, actually. <laughs> and that was the end of the, the whole thing. <laughs> I still think it's a great idea, though. <laughs> it's got such a good ring to it, you know, Dharma dances. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Try really hard not to evaluate yourself, you know? Try really hard to have the confidence that the flowering has begun. And that what is most important is that we're going in the right direction. And this is such a rare and precious thing. This is such a rare and precious thing. I don't mean as Buddhists, you know? I mean as as those of us who really want the truth who really want to wake up, who really sense another possibility other than dwelling in the old, dwelling in the familiar. So I think it's really important to recognize that we're going in the right direction, and that is all that's important. A year ago, I was actually officiating at a wedding. And one of the um, parts of the wedding was someone who was singing a song to the people who were getting married. And I was so struck by the words. One sentence she sang over and over again. I think it's an, an, As- an Aztec song, or I'm not quite sure. But she sang this one sentence over and over again. And the sentence is, only for a short time, are we loaned to one another? Only for a short time are we loaned to one another. So, can we remember this in all moments of our life? Only for a short time are we loaned to ourselves, too. So, thank you so much. I truly, enormously um, appreciate you and love you and respect you. And just a few more things, more things to remember. (laughs) We don't actually have to load you up with things to remember. I think there is a curious and mysterious part of understanding that many, many times in our lives it comes to us when we need it most. And that sometimes I know when we leave retreats there can be a certain feeling of anxiety, you know, have I got it all together? Have I got enough? Have I 
remembered everything, you know, and we want to make long lists and things. But and there's a way that that's okay, but there's also, I think, a very big place of trust that bearing in mind that, you know, whatever understandings you have come to in this retreat, whatever openings you have found, whatever resources you have been able to connect with, well, then nobody gave them to you. That they do lie within yourself. And we are just learning the ways of tapping into the wisdom and the balance and the understandings, the clarity that really makes a difference in our lives. And there's a place where we really need to trust in that. Trust in that. As you leave a retreat, I would suggest really it is so helpful to go with great care. You remember in coming into this retreat that it did take some time of adjustment and transition and learning to be present in this particular reality. Well, when you leave a retreat is yet another process of transition and adjustment and a reality that has some different forms in it. And it is easy, I think, for us to leave a retreat and be involved in catch-up, you know, catch-up with my phone calls, catch-up with the people I haven't spoken to in a week, you know, catch-up with my jobs, catch-up with my work. And I think it is helpful to respect at times, I wouldn't want to say, you know, vulnerability in a negative way, but there is a place of softness and tenderness often that we leave a retreat with that, um, you know, can get a little bruised by too much, too fast. So some care, I think, around our engagements and occupations in the first couple of days after retreat do take some time to be alone, take some time to be still, to listen well. You know, measure, measure your re-entry. Um, As we've said many times during this week, that meditation is about being awake. It's about waking up. But hopefully we haven't given the impression that that waking up is only an inner path. Um, when we look at Buddhist teaching, you know, the Noble Eightfold Path, half of it addresses an inner waking up and half of it addresses a waking up in our lives. Um, it seems to me often that there are three areas that it is really worth giving attention to and that waking up is a way of caring for those three areas. One of them is learning how to care for ourselves, how to live in a way of respect for ourselves. The other is learning how to care for our practice because this is our vehicle. Um, for connection, our vehicle for waking up, and the other is learning how to care for others, for our community, for the world that we live in. And I think these are, all three are held in an equal balance um, and are addressed with an equal attentiveness, and yet the ways of that, that caring is extended is, of course, different in those different dimensions. Caring for ourselves does not mean, of course, assuming a position of defensiveness or protectiveness or, you know, a feeling of I'm too fragile to be in this world. Um, caring for ourselves is many different dimensions. One of them is caring for our solitude as well as our togetherness with others. This is a very direct way of caring for ourselves that we take time to be with ourselves, to really know what it means to be at home inwardly, caring for our bodies, caring for our health, caring for our, the quality of our minds. This impacts upon many areas of our lives. You know, too many people do too much, have too much doing in their lives and not enough stillness. 
And, you know, when we get into places where we're burnt out, exhausted, you know, stretched too far or fragile, well, it's a message that we are not caring for ourselves. We are not caring for ourselves. We are not living in a way where we are respecting ourselves. Caring for ourselves also comes through um, the kind of mindfulness or lack of it that we bring to our sense doors. How we use our sense doors in this world. The Buddha spoke a lot about protecting the sense doors and restraint at the sense doors. I think there's much wisdom in this. You know, it is so easy to displace ourselves, um, to be so overly concerned with what we can consume through the sense doors as a way of kind of camouflaging an inner unease or discontent. You know, it is the illness of our culture and the belief that if we can get far enough away from ourselves, we don't have to feel what is going on. Um, it's a wonderful thing. I get a lot from Newsweek magazine. <laughs> <It's funny. laughs> there was a wonderful story in there some years about Gus the polar bear in New York Zoo. And Gus the polar bear was presenting some dysfunctional behavior. <laughs> and by jazz you know, very compulsively just doing laps in his pool all day long, up and down, up and down, up and down. And they called in a number of animal psychologists to try and figure out what was wrong with Gus. And they said, well, Gus is bored. Gus is bored, that's why he's doing this. He's not happy and he's bored. So the solution was to fill his pool with toys. And the zoo director said, hey, distraction works for us. Why not for Gus? Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a very sad thing to feel like we substitute distraction for freedom, that maybe Gus was unhappy because Gus really was not at home in this pool in New York. You know? And maybe it was that simple, you know? that Gus was not free, you know, and maybe, you know, toys were a postponement or an attempt to camouflage the distress of that. And I think that is what often happens to an unwise use of the sense doors, is that we attempt to camouflage what is actually happening. And I think we do see that a lot in our world with the addiction to the pleasant sensation, um, the better experience, the nicer taste, the better sound, how much can we see, how much can we listen to, you know, how much can we fill ourselves with. It's not to say that there's anything amiss with the pleasant sensation at all, but there is that in life, there is also the unpleasant sensation in life, and there is that which is in between. And to try and use one to divorce ourselves from the others is actually to divorce ourselves from life. It's to divorce ourselves from what is true. And this practice is not geared towards having yet more and more pleasant sensations or manufacturing them or producing them, but finding a, a deeper happiness within ourselves, a deeper contentment within ourselves that can embrace the pleasant and the unpleasant and that which is neither. So a wise use of the sensors is a way of listening inwardly, and it is a way of connecting again and again with, with a sense of focus and clarity. Um, it's also a practice in itself. You know, you see when you walk down a busy city street, you know how easy it is when the sense doors are everywhere, so is the mind. You know, if you walk down a busy city street and your, you know, your eyes are looking everywhere, you know, and your body's doing something else and your ears are trying to listen in on that conversation or get away from that sound or, you know, pick up on something else. When the sense doors are everywhere, so is the mind. And we know the effect of that fragmentation. And there's another way, of course, of walking down that busy city street where we don't block things out, but perhaps we cultivate as a practice one of the sense doors, that as I walk, I'm perhaps fully with my body, 
or when I walk, perhaps I'm very fully with listening or with seeing. That there's a, a way in which we use our sense doors to actually ground us and connect us. Again, just as we've used the breath here, not as a way of shutting other things out, but as a way of making us more conscious or helping us to be more conscious within all those things. When we overuse the sense doors, it's a good clue, actually. You know, when we find ourselves too busy at the sense doors, you know, more intentionally, it's a good clue to a feeling of a lack of contentment or happiness or clarity within ourselves. You know, and stuffing has, of course, become a major practice in our culture. You know, stuffing as much as we can in any given moment into all of the sense doors. You know, when we you know, sit in a park, you know, when we're reading a book and we have our Walkman on and we're feeding our mouths and, you know, and our bodies are jiving and, you know, and and our minds are probably a bit with the book and thinking something else, you know, and meanwhile there's these little glances around. That's called stuffing. And, you know, we call it, or we have learned to call it, relaxing. (laughs) But it is not. It's not caring for ourselves not caring for ourselves. You know, when we go back to renunciation and its relationship to simplicity, you know, simplicity is the ground of attentiveness. Simplicity is the ground of connectedness. And most often there is a relationship between our willingness to let go and being present. It is good to bear that in mind. Caring for ourselves comes in so many different ways, nourishing ourselves, nourishing our hearts, nourishing our minds in, in helpful ways. Um, looking at those places that do bring joy, those places of connectedness in our lives. Um, looking at what actually really leads to happiness. Sometimes nourishment comes through some, you know, mindful, good reading. Um, I've become very much an advocate of a, a little bit of, you know, moderate amount, very good study in reading. I think it is extraordinarily helpful. Caring for our practice. This is also a very major part of our care. Caring for our practice. That means actually really, as Narayana said, taking the time, the time for that in our lives, not putting it at the bottom of our list of priorities. Isn't it a strange thing when we say, I'll practice if I have time? And I'll be awake if I have time? (coughs) What have we done with time? We have made time into some sort of external separate dictator, as if we have no choices in this life. We do have choices in this life. Sometimes we can say yes, sometimes we can say no. I'm extraordinarily impressed in reading your interview sheets to see how many of you have a really regular practice in your lives. I think this is absolutely marvelous thing. Um, and I'm sure it doesn't always come easily. I'm sure it involves effort and commitment. Um, and yet I'm also, I think, pretty sure that you wouldn't keep doing that if you didn't find some benefit from it. There is a tremendous benefit in having that regularity of time, of stillness and connection. And it also, I think, really requires a willingness not to measure too much. Not to measure too much. Because sometimes we do take the time for some daily practice and, you know, the mind comes in and says, oh, you know, that was a waste of time again. Um, that was a waste of time, you know, my mind was just wandering, or I was so scattered, or, you know, I was so dull or agitated, you know, probably I could have been doing something more useful. Mm-hmm. We, we measure, I think, in unreal ways. Um, you know, concentration you can measure, that's something you can measure, you know. But this practice is not just about concentration, it is about understanding. Far more primary than concentration. Concentration comes and goes, but wisdom is the, the kind of heartbeat of our lives. You cannot measure the value of a single sitting. You can't measure 
the ways in which insight deepens or matures. You can't measure the way lessons we often learn in our practice, even in times when it's really difficult. You know, we can't measure the significance of those moments that we take to be still. It's not possible. It's not possible. Other things can be measured. I think it is most important to understand that every moment of stillness is worthwhile, no matter what the content is. I mean, haven't we talked about that so much this week? The content is not important. What's important is that we are there. We are, are there. So it is actually a good gift to offer to oneself, to let go of those measurements. You know, sometimes those sittings that we label as being, you know, good, great, successful sittings, well, sometimes, certainly not always, but sometimes those sittings are the times actually where we're most solidifying this, the I notion. Look what I am, you know, look what I got, you know. I'm a great yogi, you know, I did this, I can point to that. Sometimes those sittings that are the most difficult and frustrating, um, they are the sittings often where we are learning some of the deepest lessons about patience and acceptance and calmness and equanimity and compassion and kindness because we're there. And being there in itself is an act of compassion and calmness no matter what happens, no matter what happens. Our practice is also serving very much as a symbol in our lives, and this is also of primary importance because we live in a world of messages and symbols, most of which emphasize quite different values than what we emphasize here. And many of the symbols we receive from the media, from magazines, from newspapers, etc., you know, really have this emphasis upon becoming, upon being perfect, about having, about measuring and evaluating yourself, about, you know, finding those very fragile facades of perfection in our world. And that is, of course, very much the impetus in our culture is more, 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 you know, be more, have more, become more. Um, recently in, in England, I saw this advert for a Volvo car, and it said, the caption was, it said, you can worship here. <laughs> I thought, ugh, it, uh, please. Um, I mean, that's pretty gross, you know, that's really pretty gross. But a lot of our symbols, part of the success of symbols, or part of the way in which symbols are measured as being successful, is that they're actually not so gross. You know, they're far more seductive, um, far more subtle in many ways. So what we do in our practice is actually we, we bring into our world and plant into our world other symbols with other messages important reminders to us. And sitting is one of them. I mean, what happens when you sit? You don't think, well, this is a time to, you know, gain some new credential or earn some more money or, you know, do this. I mean, it doesn't really have a use as such, you know, in our conventional sense of usage, you know. Sitting doesn't, it's not in order to, it doesn't have a sort of use. It's not a commodity you can kind of value, but it is a powerful symbol. It's a symbol of connectedness. You know, it's a symbol of listening. It's a symbol of caring for ourselves. It's a symbol of connecting and put, putting ourselves close to the earth. It's a symbol of completeness. It doesn't matter whether those all symbols are all kind of immediately fulfilled every time we sit, but the fact that they be our symbols makes them very powerful in our lives, powerful reminders, powerful wake-up calls. Our, our practice is, of course, not only about what happens when we sit. Our practice is very much also how we speak, the choices we make, how we approach our work, how we approach other people. And I think this is the place where we come into looking at how do we care for others? How do we care for our world? Um, we care for our world many ways by being responsible, responsive, 
to ourselves by bringing many of the qualities and understandings we find in meditation into those, all of those areas where we embody ourselves in this life through our speech and through our actions, how we are with other people, um, how we use resources, how we respond to difficulty in others. All of these areas are part of wise action. You know, wise action is about who we are in this world and how we look after others. I also think if it is at all possible, it is really helpful to have one place in our lives where we really actually care for somebody else who has less than ourselves, whether it is less in terms of resources, whether it is less in terms of understanding, um, whether it is less in terms of companionship. I think that sense of reaching out in our lives to touch the heart of another is actually a very important part of our practice. Really cultivating that sense of connectedness, openness, acceptance, forgiveness, generosity. You know, that is, you know, when we were talking about Donna yesterday, generosity is something very real. It is about a little bit going beyond sometimes the edge of what is most comfortable and familiar for, to us. You know, and the way in which this practice is actually intended not only to bring, you know, to remind us it's not about the end of our suffering, that this practice is about the end of suffering, the end of all suffering. And that means a tr- taking upon ourselves, I think, a tremendous sense of, of vision and possibility in our lives. And it doesn't mean that you have to go out and, you know, register with the Sisters of Charity or, you know, any of these things, but how many countless opportunities do we have in a single day to touch the heart of another person in a meaningful way that often just means going a little bit beyond what is easiest or more comfortable to us? You know, to really listen or, or touch, touch another person who is obviously distressed or, or, or in conflict or struggling. The people we pass on the street you know, who are, who are homeless and so, so lonely and so lost sometimes. You know, the opportunities to actually help somebody in a way that maybe seems very little to us, um, but may make a huge difference to them. The other, yesterday or the day before, IMS received a letter from a yogi who came here on retreat a couple of weeks ago. And she said, you know, she, she arrived here, you know, she drew through a snowstorm. She was in a terrible state. She was distressed. She was uptight. She was obnoxious. And her car got stuck at the bottom of the driveway. And she came storming into the building, she said, you know, ready to take on the world, you know, just so, so lost and so distressed. And she said one of the staff members came to her and said, would you be comfortable if I parked your car for you? <laughs> and she said that, Apart from what happened on the retreat for her, that that single act of kindness changed her life. That that single act of kindness changed her life. And I thought, well, what a wonderful thing. How often we underestimate the impact of a real single act of kindness. And we know that that's also not part of our culture. Part of our culture is often to sort of withdraw and close down and feel like there's all too much out there. The truth is there is too much suffering out there. That is the truth. There's far too much suffering. Some of it is part of life we can't avoid, and some of it is not part of life. And some of it is most definitely avoidable and endable. Again, it doesn't mean being ambitious in our lives. But caring for our community, you know, our community, this is one part of our community. Our community is also our families. Our community is our sangha outside of here. But our community is also the world. It is also the world. And that is a place often, you know, where we are, have the capacity actually to stretch ourselves also in that connection. You know, to go beyond a little bit our own boundaries sometimes. Um, staying in a staff member's room this week and she has this wonderful note on her board and she says when you choose your friends you often choose people who are willing to collude in your own delusions 
The people in your life who you don't choose are not necessarily making those choices. So sometimes to connect with other people, you know, it's actually it's pretty challenging. It's, it's, it's sometimes difficult, you know. People have really different ways of seeing. But what a practice. What a practice. Coming back to that question, what am I being asked to let go of here? And why is it difficult? Why is it difficult? Caring for our communities, caring for others is often also bringing much attention into why speech. Because through our speech and our actions is the other places, the primary places we embody either wisdom or ignorance. We're places where we embody either compassion or conflict. And speech is, of course, a really fascinating one. Many of you may have already well, you may have not discovered it yet, but you may discover it in the next hour. <laughs> that there seems to be almost this direct pipeline between our mouths and our storehouse of conditioning. <laughs> There's a wonderful Zen, Zen, bit of Zen graffiti. It says, I open my mouth and samsara comes out. <laughs> and, I think it's, it's, it's often, so often that's true, isn't it, that we open our mouths and where did that come from? You know, that's not what I meant to say or, you know, we, we, we feel, we wish we could take, swallow those words back, you know. My children have this mantra that when anybody is a little uptight in our family, they say, swallow the words. <laughs> Swallow the words, and sometimes it's really annoying, you know. They come to you and they stroke your throat and they say, Swallow the words, you know. And sometimes that's actually, you know, swallowing the words is not actually about being very repressive or self consciousness in our speech. But sometimes knowing that, you know, sometimes our speech is connected with with clarity and well-being, and sometimes our speech is connected with some passing mental state that, quite frankly, is really not worth sharing. <laughs> In a, there is no invitation to share that mental state. The world has not invited it. And often when we do share it, we find painful consequences and painful repercussions, you know, wishing we could erase those moments in time and actually come back to a place where we were speaking in a way that we felt was authentic and helpful and truthful. So mindfulness around speech is a whole practice in itself. It is a whole practice in itself. But it is a very powerful way of caring for others, of caring for others in, in very real ways, and at the same time, caring for ourselves. These are not exclusive. Hmm? We're doing both at the same time. The patience, again, the patience we spoke about, this is not a microwave spirituality. You know, you don't just pop it all in and out comes the finished product two minutes later. It has ups and downs. There are valleys and peaks, moments when we feel we're getting nowhere and moments of real breakthroughs. And we need to be able to accommodate both. You know, as I mentioned also in the talk the other night, our life has seasons and our practice has seasons. And we need to learn the lessons that are really being offered to us right where we are. And we can do this. We can do this. I have every confidence. We can all do this. So I also would very much like to thank you for the tremendous sincerity you've brought to this week. It's been a very wonderful week, a very gentle, a very soft week, and all because of you. So I thank you for coming, for being here, and I hope we see you again. Um, all being well, we will be here again. It's in the plan. <laughs> okay, so if we take a, a short time, just for a short closing loving-kindness meditation.
just gently and calmly once more, just being present in your body and in this moment. Within yourself and within this community. Bringing your attention to the area of your heart. Connecting, nurturing a sense of warmth and friendliness within yourself, towards yourself. Letting your body, your heart be filled with a sense of friendliness, acceptance, warmth, loving kindness. And extending to yourself a sense of appreciation and honoring of yourself in this time here this week. Honoring the efforts and sincerity you have brought. Honoring your commitment and energy. Honoring your perseverance and understanding. And offering to yourself a very heartfelt sense of appreciation and loving kindness and heartfelt wishes for your own well-being. May I be free from conflict and danger. May I be free from struggle and fear. May my heart be filled with friendliness. May my life be filled with peace. Reflecting for a moment, bringing into that warmth of loving kindness an awareness of each woman in this room and each person in this building, the ways in which we have been interwoven during this retreat through our efforts and commitment and dedication and offering a deep sense of appreciation to each one here, each person in the building, for their support and presence, for their commitment and generosity. And extending heartfelt wishes for their well-being and happiness. May you be free from harm and danger. May you be free from struggle and fear. May your hearts be filled with peace. May your lives be filled with happiness. And extending that sense of warmth and friendliness to embrace a much bigger circle as people in our lives who we love and care for, our friends and parents, children, 
family. To embrace also the people actually who we struggle with, who we may dislike, who have hurt us, or who we reject. And the countless people in this world whose names we don't know, but whose hearts we do know in their capacity to experience the same fear and the same pain as we can experience, in their capacity to experience the joy and the safety and the happiness we can also experience. Embracing in that circle of warmth and friendliness the creatures in our world, the animals, the birds, and the oceans, the small and the large, may all beings be free from harm and danger. May all beings be free from fear and struggle. May all beings find peace in their hearts. May all beings find peace in their lives. May all beings live in peace. 